You're listening to the weekly message at Mosaic Church. For more information or to talk about your own life in Christ, email info at mosaicchurchevans.org. If you'd like to support our ministry, visit our website at mosaicchurchevans.org. Thanks for listening. And now, this week's message. with a friend and suddenly you thought, hey, me and this friend, like we see eye to eye, we think, you know, on the same plane and then no. Not only that, they, they said stuff that just kind of left you going, what was that about? Or, frankly, you may have been stunned and embarrassed by something you said or posted in the last year. The question is, what happened? What? How did we get to a place where either ourselves or someone we loved and maybe previously respected, how did, how did we get to a place where we've crossed that line, where our love for Jesus, our neighbors, and yes, even our enemies, gets overshadowed and frankly overpowered by words that inflict pain, shame, and, and real social distance? How, how did we get here? The truth is, probably most of us, to some degree, have felt our way of life threatened between a pandemic, wearing masks, quarantine, social unrest, and a crazy political season, the threat to any sense of normal and, frankly, any sense of kind of hope for the future, the the threat has seemed imminent. And when our way of life feels threatened, deeply threatened, that's when we find out what we're capable of. When our way of life is threatened, that's when we begin to figure out that the dark side is not simply some external reality. It actually still has some internal resonance. Amen? I just want to point out that Harry Bell couldn't be here this morning. And Harry Bell and Chris Gall say amen a lot. And so if Harry Bell's not here and I'm up here, I, I need some ameners out there somewhere. There you go. Fantastic. I believe in y'all. So as we begin this journey through Exodus, which is really a journey of God's people from slavery to freedom, from uh, foreigners who became a nation, from a people without a law and without direction of becoming the holy people of God, as we begin that journey through Exodus, we really begin with a threat. Truthfully, we begin with a couple of threats that are handled very differently, processed very differently And so what I hope that the text exposes today is that ungodly fear leads to toxic decisions. Godly fear leads to partnering with God in His mission to make a world that looks like Jesus. Godly fear leads to partnering with God in His mission to making a world that looks like Jesus. Because in crisis, friends, what you choose to fear governs the narrative between your ears. What you choose to fear governs the narrative between your ears. At Mosaic, we say the best way to engage a message is with a Bible, something to write with, and something to write on. So I encourage you, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, just find Genesis, the first book, hang a slight right, and there you are. So Exodus chapter 1. 
These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. And they multiplied greatly and increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they will join with our enemies, fight against us, and leave our country. Put this story in context. Uh, In Genesis, um, God created Adam and Eve. They rebelled against God. The world fell into sin and violent turmoil. God decided to wash the earth clean with a flood. And then he started back over with a new Adam, a new Eve, called Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah had a great-grandson named Joseph, who miraculously came to power. He became second in command in Egypt and by God's providence, saved Egypt and most of the Middle Eastern world from a a, a huge famine. But by this time in the story, this is years and years after the fact, there's a new king, and Joseph means nothing to him. And notice this new king has a new narrative between his ears. It's not the people of Israel have always been good to us. It's not the people of Israel have, have... actually saved our very lives. No, no, no. There's a new narrative in his mind. It's the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. If war breaks out, they will join with our enemies, fight against us, and leave our country. From everything we can see in the biblical text, there is no evidence that the Israelites were ever combative or militant against the Egyptians. This is just a perceived threat, a fear. And in crisis, what you choose to fear governs the narrative between your ears. Notice that the king builds a narrative. At some point, some other nation may come and attack us, and if they do, they will join with our enemies. And the fear that governs the narrative between their ears becomes the active agent in a diabolical plan. He says, come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Picking it up in verse 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithon and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth or on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Here's the shrewd plan. Work them ruthlessly. Put them under harsh labor. Why? so that they're never aware that they are actually the stronger of the two people. So that they're never aware that they're actually the people of God. 
Sound familiar? Work them ruthlessly so that they are so distracted by sun-up to sundown, back-breaking labor that they never notice their own position, their own identity. And then when they're under physical and, frankly, psychological oppression, kill off the next generation of men. Kill off their next generation of strength, right? So that, again, the Egyptians can become the stronger of the two nations. Now, a question needs to be asked. How does Pharaoh, one man, get a whole nation behind this diabolical plan? Why wouldn't somebody say, no, 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 that's that's unethical, that's unjust. How does Pharaoh get his whole nation behind this plan? Pharaoh took the fear between his ears and created a narrative for his people. Almost sounds like a conspiracy theory. Just going to throw that out there. Then he says this, they'll join our enemy and leave. Remember that when the Egyptians came, or excuse me, when Joseph's family, the Israelites, came to Egypt, they were shepherds. And Joseph told his family, he says, look, we're going to put you over in Goshen, which is this really nice part of Egypt, to kind of get you away from most of the Egyptians because shepherding is detestable to them. Now, I've had jobs that I didn't like. But I've never had a job that was detestable. Matter of fact, true story, I've even had a job that was featured on Mike, uh, what was his name? Yeah, Dirty Jobs. Uh, yeah, it was featured on Dirty Jobs and Mike Rowe, that's it. And, um, but it wasn't detestable to me. So who's been doing this undesirable work? The Israelites. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say the Egyptians had grown accustomed to that way of life, to the way of life where the Israelites do the work they don't want to do. What if they leave? The Egyptian people abandon any sense of ethical behavior when their way of life was threatened. Hear that. They abandon ethical, righteous behavior when their way of life was threatened. Pharaoh took the fear between his ears and turned it into a potential narrative, and boom, suddenly they are threatening, excuse me, suddenly they are treating their Israelite neighbors with abuse and cruelty. Thankfully, we live in a much more sane and civil time. I want to say this humbly and with as much compassion as I possibly can. If our way of life becomes an idol, threatened, we are capable of saying things and frankly doing things that we never would have thought possible. When our way of life becomes an idol, when it's threatened, we are capable of saying things and doing things we never would have thought possible. I was talking with Sandy Ruth Purvis between services and she was like, you know, Chris, we, we want to think that humanity is just uh, it's just completely different now, but the reality is our sinful brokenness is still as much a reality today as it's ever been. In Tim Keller's words, idols are often good things that we make into ultimate things. Idols are often good things that we make into ultimate things. How do you know if a good thing has become an ultimate thing in your life? 
Watch how you respond to it when it's threatened. A good thing has probably become an idol when you feel justified to respond to any threat of that good thing in an ungodly way. When you feel like justified that, hey, I can respond to this in a way that would not honor my King Jesus because it's a threat to something that, frankly, I probably value more than Jesus, that's an idol. Think about it like this. Uh, When you feel that it's acceptable to slander a teacher who gave your student, your son or daughter, a poor grade, even though in reality that's probably what they earned, it's very possible your child has gone from being a gift from God to actually being your God. It's a sobering thought. And when our way of life goes from being a good thing to an ultimate thing, an ultimate source of love, of joy, of peace, of fullness that is really supposed to come from God Himself, suddenly any threat to our way of life exposes our real God. If you care about the political governance of our country, listen now, if you care about the political governance of our country and read up and study the issues and study about political candidates, you could probably have some intelligent, helpful, and kind discourse with neighbors, friends, co-workers, family. You may even make a kind, intelligent, uh, possibly helpful Facebook post. Maybe. So, but if politics in my way of life becomes my idol, now I may say and do some very ungodly things. Why? Because my real God is exposed. When my real God is threatened, I become real insecure. Look at your own heart and say, what makes me really insecure? Begin to expose what's going on, the, the, the real God that you're worshiping. And trust me, some of the ugliest parts of my life has been revealed when the Spirit of God lovingly exposed idols. I am not throwing stones at anyone. I am simply sharing my own convictions with you. I've seen the destructive nature of elevating a good thing into an ultimate thing in my heart. I've seen what I am capable of when I am threatened, and it's not pretty. It does not honor Jesus, and it does not build His kingdom. An ungodly fear leads to toxic decisions. An ungodly fear leads to toxic decisions. And notice what happens. The Egyptians have this ungodly fear. It's oppressive in their minds, and then it becomes an external oppression to the Israelites, right? They passed on that oppression. An ungodly fear leads to toxic decisions, and in crisis, what you choose to fear governs the narrative between your ears. Thankfully, in this story, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are not the only ones who have a fear between their ears. Let's pick it up in verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and increased 
the people, and they became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, listen to this, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. I love that. There's just echoes of this, like, he who lays his life down for me will find it. That they found their life. Then Pharaoh gave orders to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but every girl let her live. So the obvious question is, what is the fear of God, and how is it different from ungodly fear? Also, where did Shifra and Pua, who are now some of my new heroes, where did they come to learn to fear God? Remember, they didn't have a Bible. They had an ancestor, right? And they probably remembered another time in their family's life when the fear of God uh, was in Scripture and, and, and how it related to uh, another child's life being in jeopardy. See, um, God called Abraham to sacrifice his long-lost promised child, Isaac, on the altar. What is God doing? He's checking to see, is this a good thing in Abraham's life, or has Isaac become an ultimate thing? That's what he's doing. And just as Abraham was about to go through this just incredible act of obedience, painful obedience, he's about to slay his son, an angel shows up and says, do not lay a hand on the boy. He said, do not do anything to him. Now that I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And when the writer of Hebrews speaks about this, he he says of Abraham, he says, Abraham reasoned, that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Now listen to that. This is important. Abraham believed the promises that God had spoken over Isaac's life. And so he reasoned, okay, Isaac hasn't lived out all those promises yet, so God must be going to raise him back up from the dead. The fear of God, unlike ungodly fear, calls us to reason beyond our immediate circumstances and even beyond this life. It calls us to reason. The fear of God called Shifra and Pua to reason that even if it cost them their very lives, one day they would have to stand before God Almighty and give an account for why they had murdered infants. They were reasoning. The fear of God is reasonable. As an aside, I love how this scripture cuts us like a knife. This one chapter exposes the damaging nature of slavery, racial inequality and injustice, and abortion. One fell swoop. Scripture will cut you like a knife, and it needs to cut us like a knife. Praise God for it. And notice the fear of God, their reasoning. They said, I'm called to live as if one day I will stand before God and give an account for what I've done. It led them to partner with God in His mission to making a world that looks like Jesus. That's God's mission. He is making a world, a kingdom, that that is ripe and ready for King Jesus, that looks like King Jesus. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And this is why I have such deep respect for Shifra and Pua. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. They were willing to lose their lives for God's sake, and it led to the preservation of the whole Israelite nation. 
John Walton talks about how uh, midwives in the ancient world, they didn't just show up when the woman was ready to have a child. They would literally walk with her from conception to delivery. So, so there was this journey that, that you would go on uh, with, with the women and their families. So Shifra and Pua, here's, here's what I want you to take away from this. Shifra and Pua didn't have a grand plan for saving the Israelite nation. Their choice didn't garner loud fanfare or attention. Nor was it even an attempt to fight fire with fire. Hear me on this. Hear me on this. This is so important. They, Shifra and Pua did not fight Pharaoh's evil, sinful, fearful plan with another evil, sinful, fearful plan of their own. They didn't fight fire with fire because an ungodly response to an initially ungodly action does not lead to a godly outcome. Amen? All right? So you're um, having a discussion with your spouse, and um, she is dead wrong, and you take it upon yourself to reveal to her that she is dead wrong, but speaking truth in love, you get about half of that equation right, right? Like you speak the truth, but you blow up and you, and you have a lot of anger. And then she sees the error of her way. She does it the way you think she ought to do it. Is your anger effective? Maybe in the short term. Does it produce the righteousness of the godly, joy-filled marriage that God intends for you? Not even close. An ungodly response to an initially ungodly action does not lead to a godly outcome. Shifra and Pua resisted ungodly fear. They resisted making an ungodly response. Simply, they sought to honor God and serve the person right in front of them. Let me say that again. They simply resisted ungodly fear and sought to serve God, honor God, and serve the person right in front of them. Mother Teresa, who said many brilliant things, uh, had two separate brilliant quotes that I just thought were awesome, and so I decided for twice the brilliance, let's just combine them. She said, she said, never worry about numbers. Help one at a time and always start with those nearest to you. Do not wait for leaders. Do it alone, person to person. Friends, I've been saying this for a while. But if we want a world that looks like Jesus, we actually have to disciple people to follow Jesus. You actually have to disciple people to follow Jesus. If you want a Jesus-looking world, you have to disciple people to follow Jesus. It can be so tempting to do everything but what actually matters. To do everything but get into the real day-to-day -day journey of discipling people and teaching them to walk with Jesus. But like Shifra and Pua, like Mother Teresa, like Jesus, we must resist the threat of what-if thinking and connect to a narrative that says, I am called to serve God and consequently serve the person right in front of me. Why? Because in crisis, what you choose to fear governs the narrative between your ears. And the fear of God leads to partnering with God in His mission to making the world that looks like Jesus. What are you choosing to fear in this time? I want you to think about that. 
what are, what are you choosing to fear? And this time, it is a choice. Are you waiting for leaders? For somebody else to do it? Or are you choosing to be a part of God's plan, person to person? In the midst of a thousand what ifs, whose life is being revolutionized by the gospel of King Jesus because you're walking with them? Will the next generation be stronger because you, like Shifra and Pua, are committed to helping birth and raise up the next generation of Christ followers? Like Pharaoh, the enemy of our souls wants nothing more than to distract us and disconnect us from our purpose, disconnect us from our identity. The enemy of our soul wants badly to take the great commission which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ and turn it into the great omission of your Christian life. Right? Where we do everything but actually teach people to walk with Jesus. And hear me on this. In our exhaustion, we, like the Israelites, can even find ourselves doing the will of man rather than God's will. Heaven forbid. Fear of God leads to partnering with God in His mission of making a world that looks like Jesus. But guys, in reality, we'll never get there. We will never get there until we are confronted with the cross. The key for Shifra and Pua, unlike the Egyptians, is they were willing to have their way of life trampled upon for the sake of God. And this is the mystery of the cross. The mystery of the cross is we are being healed because Jesus chose to love us extravagantly. He chose chose to love us self-sacrificially long before we were ever loving Him. The mystery of the cross is salvation has come to our world because Jesus was willing to not simply let His way of life be threatened, but to have it completely stripped from Him. He was willing to be slandered, abused, beaten, crucified by those who hated him because he would never stop loving and obeying God. And because he would never stop loving and obeying God, he never stopped loving those who abused him, those who slandered him. I mean, he's the only one in this room who ever had a wife, who ever had a wife to that type of Consequently, he calls us to, to not just, um, well, let me, let me put it this way. He was willing to give up his way of life so that we could have his way of life. He was willing to give up his way of life so that we could have his way of life. And what was his way of life? His way, his way of life was and is to get all his love, all his joy, all his peace, all his purpose, all his fullness from God, from the Father. Right? Jesus declared, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. When Jesus declared himself to be the bread of life, he is pointing back to manna that fell from heaven daily to the Israelites. Or maybe I should say it like this. He's actually showing that manna was pointing to him. And one of the things about manna was you had to get it every single day. It was a daily thing. 
if you you couldn't hold it for two days, like it would get all nasty and maggoty and all that stuff. Bottom line is, what is it saying? The life of Jesus is to be a daily experience. It's it's not something you look back and say, well, yeah, five years ago I was on fire for Jesus, or twenty years ago I came to Jesus at such and such a camp. That's good. That's good. It's a good foundation to build on. But the life of Jesus has to be a daily partaking through Scripture, through prayer, through intimate time alone with God. Because, guys, it is then and only then when our way of life is threatened that we can love those who threaten our way of life. It is then and only then when our way of life can be threatened and, and we know that our, the fullness of life isn't coming from our way of life, it's coming from Jesus. It's then and only then when we can say, even if it takes me to the cross, not my will but thine be done. Guys, it's then and only then when our life comes from Jesus, not our way of life, that the threat is no longer an ultimate threat. Hear me on that. When our way of life is coming from Jesus, it's only then when, our, when the threat is no longer an ultimate threat because whatever the external thing is that is being threatened, it's not my ultimate source of life. It's not my ultimate source of joy. It's not my ultimate source of peace. I can be at peace regardless of the circumstances. When experiencing Jesus on a daily basis becomes my life, the threat is no longer an ultimate threat. Speak evil of us, mistreat us, steal everything we own. You cannot take the love of God from us. You cannot take the life of God from us. Take away everything, uh, take away our very lives, and you cannot take away our eternal inheritance in the life to come. Then we will be far more alive and frankly far more in love than we are today. And guys, it's when we take up the cross. When we take up the cross that we begin to see the power of God. Let me say it like this. If you want to see the power of God, you must take up the cross of Christ. And right now, hear me, hear me. Right now, the cross of Christ means choosing to manifest greater love for those who threaten your way of life your way of life. The cross of Christ means choosing to manifest greater love for those who threaten your way of life than for your way of life. In a very real way, this is what Dr. Martin Luther King impressed upon those who nonviolently and victoriously fought with him for equality and social justice. Listen to this brilliant quote. He said, To our most bitter opponent, we we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot, in all good conscience, obey your unjust laws, because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. But throw us in jail. We will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead, and we will still love you. 
But be ye assured, I love this part, but be ye assured that we will wear you down with our capacity to suffer. One day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. Friends, what threat is keeping you from wearing down your enemies with long-suffering love? What threat is keeping you from wearing down your enemies with long-suffering love? What threat is keeping you from the double victory of God's love, both healing your own soul and the souls of those with whom you disagree? Do not be threatened by the things of this world. No one can steal the love, the joy, the peace of God from you. No one can steal God's life from you. But it is about a choice. It is about a choice. And you get to make an intentional choice. Actually, intentional choices, daily choices, to get your life from God, day in, day out. So what is your next step towards God's life? Maybe something in your heart has been exposed. Maybe the Holy Spirit has exposed, yeah, in the midst of this crazy season we call a pandemic, 2020 election season, 2021, there are some good things that I've made old there's some ways that I've responded that did not honor my ultimate King, King Jesus. And, and if, that, if that's happening, maybe it's something you've done externally, but maybe it's just a posture in your own heart. If your heart is just feeling the ping of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, then I invite you into God's gracious love. As we step into prayer, be passionate about confessing that before God. And let me stress, be passionate. Don't be passive. I am confident that hell is full of passivity. Be passionate. And let God right-size that thing in His mercy, in His grace, right-size that thing in your own heart. Maybe, and I'm speaking to our friends through the camera right now, maybe your next step is to choose to join the people of God back in, in live corporate worship. I know this has been a crazy season. We've been, you know, trying to figure out COVID day by day and just kind of how to live into this. But I, I will say very few things will make the narrative between your ears, the fear of God and the love of God more than corporate worship. Very few things will, will recenter your being than being with the people of God and exalting the name of or maybe it's time for you, maybe your next intentional choice is a life group. Every single one of our life groups comes with a, a personal discipleship plan just for the whole purpose of helping you, teaching you, giving you the equipment to daily spend time with Jesus so that He becomes your life, so that you're daily partaking of the Word, daily partaking of, of His Spirit and letting Him empower you so that you can live a cruciform life, so that you can live like Jesus did in this world. Or maybe for you, the next step is to get back into the work of discipling, helping the person right in front of you, 
epic life group kids city. They're not just for adults, students, and kids just to, you know, get them to feed on the Lord. It's actually how we help teach others to feed on the Lord. It's how we help take the journey with people. So if you're thinking, man, i got to get back in the game, talk to me. Talk to Karen. Make strategic decisions. Hear me on this. Make strategic decisions, not passive decisions. That align your life with God's purpose. That align your life with God's life. And when Christ is your life, the threat will no longer be an ultimate threat. In a crazy world, you will have peace. In crisis, what you choose to fear governs the narrative between your ears. And the fear of God leads to partnering with Him in His mission. I want to encourage you. Choose. Choose the fear of God over the fear of men. Choose the love of God over anything less. And you will have peace. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.